Welcome to Donne Talks, provided to you by Donne, Women in Music. I am your host, Gabriela Dilatio, and in every episode I interview guests who are amplifying change, people who are using their voices and their positions to create bigger impact in our society. Today's guest is Edwina Dunn. Edwina is a data science entrepreneur who has always been fascinated by people's stories and motivations. As the co-founder of worldwide loyalty programs like Tesco's Club Card, Edwina knows firsthand what it feels like to work in a male-dominated industry and what it takes to navigate the many obstacles women have faced. People are always talking about the qualities of a leader. There is a leader and they have to have a bit of everything. You know, they have to be humble and they have to be charismatic and they have to be wise and they have to be funny and they have to be caring. And the truth is, no one has all of those qualities. No one. Um, and actually, I'm a believer of very much of putting two people who are opposite together. I think two together is the equivalent of three. It's not one and one equals two. It's one and one equals three. That is why diversity is so good, because you do need different perspectives. You need different ideas. Edwina is also the founder of The Female Lead, an educational charity dedicated to finding the factors that limit women's choices and fulfillment and amplifies their voices in order to drive change and improve economic outcomes. Edwina Dunn, thank you so much for being here with us today. Thank you for your time. How are you anyway? I'm very well, Gabriella. It's lovely to see you again and I'm delighted to have this chat with you today. Oh, it's a pleasure. So I have many, many titles for you. Data science entrepreneur, OBE, pioneer, activist, role model. And, you know, I could go on. You're such an amazing woman. I want to know what was Edwina, the teenager Edwina thinking if you, at the time? Were you dreaming of all these things? <laughs> How did it all start? Oh, no, no, not at all. I was, I don't know, I was very kind of happy-go-lucky. I, I grew up, um, I went to a good school. I had a family where my mother was stay at home. My father was an electrical engineer. He built power stations. They spent a few years in Brazil. Um, yeah. which is why I have such a great affection for Brazil. Um, but no, I was, I, was very, I was very carefree. I had my friends. I don't think I worked very hard. And honestly, I thought I'd grow up, get married, have children, and that would be it. And that is honestly how I set my expectations back then. Really? Nothing Nothing wrong with any of that, by the way, because that's exactly what my mother did. But I never dreamt of an alternative. I think that's why I feel so strongly that we need to tell stories of how women find themselves in exciting roles and exciting careers in the future. Because 
I don't think many of us really dare to dream them at the time as a teenager. Yes, that's really interesting because normally um, when you hear stories of, you know, people like yourself, you always imagine, oh no, they knew exactly what they wanted to do. They had this vision. They worked really, really hard from, from day one. It was like there, it was supposed to happen. So it's really, really interesting that you actually ended up in this, in this amazing journey that you, you have built. No, I, on, I didn't do my homework. I was a very bad student. And um, I, I... Let's not encourage that. No, <laughs> no. I mean, I, I had a very... I had a second chance, I think. And I didn't work hard until I went to work. And suddenly, all the lights went on for me. And I thought, this is really fun. I'm doing something that I'm good at. And I hadn't felt that before. I hadn't discovered that I could be really good at something. Mm -hmm. And the more I did and the harder I worked, the more I discovered that, you know, I enjoyed it. And the more I enjoyed it, the better I became. So that was really what set me alight. And what was your first job? My first job was all about, it was really the very early stages of data and technology, we took the um, census from the UK, which is like millions of records. So it's every um, adult in the UK and it was recorded, you know, and information about, you know, age, sex, what kind of house, how many children, quite dry data. Um, and at the time, it's so long ago, it was all kept on magnetic tape and it was all held separately. And so we were the first company that bought a huge commercial computer. We had to bring it in um, through the window in High Hoban. We stopped all the traffic on a Sunday. It was so huge. And we needed this computer to process this data. And from that, it was so exciting because we were then able to do what market research had been doing manually, which is how many people live or work in an area that's like half a mile from a store or a high street or something like that. So it was very, very radical, saved a huge amount of time, and it was big innovation. So it was really early data and technology and the computers were still quite weak, but because we were the first, we were pioneering and suddenly we discovered this era of using big data um, by using computing. And, and that was really the beginning. And that's where, you know, I got, um, I don't know, transported into this new world of excitement. That's fantastic. Uh, and then in the, was that in the, in the 80s when you became the youngest female vice, pres vice president. Is that for the, sorry, California yeah. Analysis Centers Incorporated? That, did I say yeah. right? You said it right. And it's not <laughs> easy to say. Yes. <laughs> no, I know. Cal Californian Analysis. California Analysis. I'm sure there is a, need, a, a shorter version for it. 
<laughs> yeah, yeah, but it sounds rude in some countries. Yeah, no, I know. <laughs> so I've I didn't avoided, try it. <laughs> I've avoided saying it. But, it, you know, it was a big company. It was two and a half thousand people. And we were just this tiny little outpost. So, um, so actually, and I, and, and I must tell you something else, because I also walked in and on my first day, um, it was such a small team. We were only uh, five. We became seven people. But one of the guys there um, I thought was lovely. And um, I married him a year later. So there was a bit of a, a love interest that probably helped me be even more excited by starting work. Well, it's always good. When <laughs> love always helps. Love um, helps. But so from the beginning of your career, you were always in a male-dominated world. Yeah. And then you probably still are right I've, now. Yeah, I've always been in a male-dominated world. And how, I, how, how was it? How did you make it work? Because uh, did you have to... I mean, I don't know. Everything you do now is exactly to, to have more role models for, for women. Mm. And, and I believe this generation and the future generations are so lucky. But, you know, back not that long ago, well, you know, even in, in, in my profession, uh, uh, it wasn't that common to have a conductor, for example. Even now, it's, it's not common at all. It's, yes. it's starting. So it's, we are in the 21st century, but sometimes it doesn't feel in some, in some areas. But mm. your, your areas until today, very male dominated. Well, yes, um, technology, um, retailing, um, and, you know, boardrooms, those three, those three combinations are just stating almost um, without exception, um, a, a, a sea of suited males, which is essentially my entire career. I think I believed in what I did, and I think it just overrode. You know, I so wanted to communicate the power of what we could do, and I I realized that as I spoke, as I tried to communicate the power of, of what can be achieved with, with data and insight and classifying consumers and all of those things. I realized that I said things slightly differently to men. I could see sometimes the desire to understand, but sometimes almost a quizzical look where they hadn't quite followed the way I said something. And I had to work quite hard to um, remove a lot of the extras I think one tends to put in as a female. Yeah. And, you know, it, I would try to strip it down to the facts in order to keep their attention. And I, I was aware of that. I'm not sure how successful I was, but I was aware of it very much. And, you know, because I was, I so wanted them to follow mm -hmm. and to hear. Um, but I think women do say things quite often differently to men. And that I believe is still quite a challenge. Mm -hmm. I don't know the science behind it, but, you know, I think we put in more words and more expression. Oh, 
definitely more words. That's what my husband always says to me. Can you say it with few words? <laughs> Just say, give me the short version. But I think when you're passionate about something, you always, you always use more words. I, that's my, my feeling, at least. Yes, it's almost the opposite of, of how best to communicate. Um, yes. Yes. And, and I think um, it has, you know, I have therefore got quite a sort of steady and, and slightly slow speaking manner because I learned over those years to slow it down because um, I, I could see people weren't following and I'm not, I'm not particularly brainy. So I knew it wasn't because I was a genius. That was my husband at the time. Um, so really, I had to just find a different approach. But anyway, it seemed to work in the end. Oh, it's it it's cer it's yeah. certainly work. And, uh, and then you, you left with your husband to start your own company after... Yeah, which sounds very easy and is, again, as if it was that, planned. And, and, and that was my question. Was it easy? No, I don't think it was. <laughs> it, so, it was one of the darkest times, I recall. And I think, I mean, I was so blissfully naive. I mean, my husband was working for someone who really was an American lawyer. And he didn't really love or understand the business that we were in. And they wouldn't invest in the next idea. And so he became really quite unhappy. Mm. And I remember my sister saying, you know, Clive's really unhappy. Is everything okay? And I thought, I hadn't really noticed it so much. But, you know, when you're working for someone who doesn't feel and understand and invest in what you do, it's really hard. So he, in the end, I said, you must go. You must be happy. You must do what you believe in. I said, don't you worry. I'll stay and uh, I'll pay the bills. I'll pay the mortgage because we've just taken out this really yeah. big mortgage. We thought we were on, you know, we thought we were going places. And um and then when they eventually accepted his resignation, uh, they fired me 10 minutes later. So for being his wife, I mean, could you believe it? Can you imagine getting away with it now? But they could, and they paid me just enough because awards were capped at that time. And I felt such a sense of moral outrage. You know, mm. I'd always worked hard. I was passionate, I believed. That sense of indignation and anger was the best incentive I've ever had. And I thought, I will show you. If you think that was good and you fired me, wait till you see what I do next. And honestly, it was the biggest motivation. And, um, you know, we worked so hard and all the time was in the back of our mind. We're going to build something bigger and better because, um, you know, that's what you do, isn't it? When you're hurt, when, when someone has affronted your sense of fair play, it's kind of what you do, or it's certainly what I did. And, um, yeah, so it was, it, and, you know, and, and, you know, they, they, you know, they came after us as well. They sued us. And it was really, oh, you know, we honestly thought we were going to lose our house, our livelihood. You know, there were really, really dark moments. But when you look at someone 
that you work with or someone that you're married to and you realize if the worst happens you can rebuild yeah and you know that yeah the power that flows from that mm -hmm. is like nothing else on earth and actually when you reach that point and say you know if we lose everything we'll just start again when you hit that moment it frees you and suddenly from there you're capable yeah. of amazing things yeah, and, and and you're always stronger afterwards yes Yes, but but I, I'm very fascinated because I'm I'm a little bit like that. I mean, I had many people who told me um, that, or oh, you you will not achieve this, or or you're, you know, we all have the, these people in our lives, and somehow I always had this. I always feel there's no options for us artists because you either are an artist or you're unhappy. So, <laughs> so it's kind of you always feel like you have no choice you almost feel like a fire inside of you when somebody denies you that chance or say, you know, you're not going to do that. Then you just go, watch me. <laughs> yes, yes, Isn't that exactly. And I think you need that strength to yeah. really succeed. You can't turn away at the first knock or the first criticism or the first hurdle. And I do think sometimes that people who've always been the top, always been the best, they struggle the most because no one has ever said to them, yeah, you failed. No one said that. You know, frankly, by the time I got there, I was quite used to it. And actually, it does make you really, really resilient. And um, there's something to be said for that because failure is the way we learn the most. And, um, you know, it, it's something I think we have to turn to our advantage and be stronger. Um, and be respectful of the fact that, you know, you're less critical of other people when they fail. Because I think, again, you know, the kindness and support of others is so incredibly important. Yes, definitely. And I, and I think uh, being a, a business owner or a self-employed person is almost like our life as an artist, because we kind of are in charge of our own business. In a, in a way, it's very rare that we have, you know, regular salaries. So it's always an, an adventure. So rejection comes on a weekly basis, you know, the, in our lives. And it's so important to remember that you have to find the reasons why you're doing, number one, and continue to develop, I guess, as, as a professional, as, as an artist. Because I think, I think being an artist is even harder if I if if I may add that element, because for me, I've always hidden behind data and evidence and numbers, you know, the facts. And, and I think the facts are such a wonderful defense because you just say, no, blue isn't prettier than pink. These are the facts, you know, it's the data. It's yes or no. And um, and I, I do think for artists where it is so subjective, it's even harder. It's really funny because I, I, I was very good at maths. That's cool. I love maths. Maybe I'm still good at maths. Just don't do it. <laughs> uh, I love numbers, fascinated and music and numbers go really well together. And for me, maths is still the word that I love the most because it's logical, it's precise. There's yeah. no doubt. So I always had this 
mathematical way of looking and you know calculating so i decided to be a i was doing architecture i decided to change everything and become a singer full-time classical <laughs> singer and wow. I, yeah and then it was i had this perfect equation right okay you want to be a classical singer south of brazil you don't know anybody who's doing that right now so what do you have to do you have to study with the best teacher in the country you have to become the best singer in the country or, or with the best singer you can be because that's your only chance and then if you do that if you work hard that's it you're gonna make it <laughs> oh my god it's so not the way this world goes because there's so mm. many other variants in our uh, in, in our life as artists, which, you know, really challenge my, I love data, I love logic, logic, like things as well. But anyway, that's not how it, it works. Well, I think we all love the things that we can rely on. And I think, you know, at this time, particularly of so much uncertainty, we do look to the data, we do look to the facts, because it's the only thing that we have in front of us so and I think that's why we all feel so out of control at the moment because all we can do is is look at this data and it you know it's limited isn't it it's it's not telling us what's going to happen it's just saying well this is what's already happened so yeah, um, exactly yeah it's it's some element of comfort but it's not enough no except thank god for the scientists oh yeah finding oh my gosh the immune i mean you know what joy and don't we all feel such great respect for them all now and oh my god deeply can you imagine the amount of hours they all this time yeah dedication and and the scientists that found it first were a married couple weren't they which i thought was lovely it kind of if you're enjoying this podcast there are three simple things you can do to support our work. First, subscribe. This way you will never miss an episode. Second, tell about us to a friend or a family member. You always have someone to share the stories of this interview. Third, give us a review on iTunes or whatever other channel you subscribe. This way you will be helping others to find our podcast. Uh, you mentioned something and now that you talk about in one of your interviews, the power of two theory mm, yes Can you tell us about that well thank you yes it is one of my favorite theories i do but you know people are always talking about the qualities of a leader there is a leader and they have to have a bit of everything you know they have to be humble and they have to be charismatic and they have to be wise and they have to be funny and they have to be caring and the truth is, no one has all of those qualities, no one. Um, and actually, I'm a believer of very much of putting two people who are opposite together, not necessarily in a marriage, but, you know, in a working relationship. And I think two together is the equivalent of three. It's not one and one equals two. It's one and one equals three. Because with opposites, you just get this halo effect of all the things they cover for each other and they expand into them. And, you know, all, always in my business, I've looked to put people together in mini teams, sort of two people, and given them huge tasks, probably unfairly, when they were still quite young mm -hmm. and said, 
you know, go run a country, go manage an enormous multi-million pound dollar, you know, uh, client. And they would rise to the challenge and they would freak, they would be scared. But in their own words, they would say afterwards, never have I grown so much, never have I realised what I was capable of. Mm-hmm. And I, I think it is that sense that you've almost got someone there um, protecting your back in a way you could never imagine before. So for me, I think a lot of this leadership theory is, is um, not wrong, but I think outdated, mm-hmm. you know, and I, I think that is why um, diversity is so good because you do need different perspectives you need different ideas and actually I think a lot of innovation and creativity in any field comes from putting two very different ideas together and then suddenly there's something magic that happens yes yes I really like that when I thank you for sharing sharing again because I think now sometimes you 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 read books about great leaders and sometimes you feel so small because you feel, I will never be able to do all that. So it kind of frees you to, I, I believe in, I totally believe in collaboration. You know, I, I can't ever imagine I, I know everything or I can do everything well, like I certainly can't. So it's, it's always yeah. positive to have somebody there with you to challenge you as well, which is not easy sometimes. You don't want to be challenged. But, you know, and I think having someone with you, challenging you, helping you is not weakness. And it's so often described as, oh, you needed help. Uh, you, you, you've come with someone else. Is that, is that because you don't know and you're not good enough? And I think this is completely wrong. I think it shows confidence. It shows respect. And, you know, I genuinely believe that that, combination of two people gives you the very very best moment when you have that moment because you got two people's thoughts and processes around it in the moment or even afterwards so I, I, I think a lot of old theory is exactly that old theory and um, it's quite a you know it, it's just quite a, a kind of um, masculine model which is one all-powerful being telling everybody Mm. what to do now you know I have a son and a daughter I I have no disrespect to either sex but I think it's outmoded and I think that's why getting women to Mm. an equal level with Mm. men and having them work together respectfully and in this collaborative way I think, you know, it's probably the best way we can all move forward and create economic growth after what has been a, 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 you know, a bad period for everything and everyone. We stopped straight in front of the door of the female lead, don't we? Um, 2015, it's a funny year because that was the year when I was actually started planning uh, what I was going to do with all my anger because I felt quite angry by that point when I discovered so many um, invisible women in the history of music which is not only music of course what happened for you what was the inspiration because you you had been in this you know male-dominated 
world for so long? And then did something click or something happen or was just a long time dream that you've been planning um, for a long time and finally you, you got the time to do it? Sometimes that's what it takes. I think that the truth of the story was it, it, somehow it was in my subconscious. I originally thought I was going to, uh, I wanted to write a film. I wanted to show what women saw when they looked in the mirror. I wanted to hear stories of what women saw when they looked in the mirror. Um, I was very moved by when you see a child put on a beautiful dress they go up onto their toes and they twirl. Mm -hmm. And actually it doesn't matter if the dress doesn't suit them or it's too big or whatever. They feel like a princess and we know so often little girls just want to be a princess when they're young and they're transported and they believe it and they're up and delighted and happy. And then when teenage years come, then nothing looks right on them, nothing looks good. You almost see that image in the changing room of shock horror. I don't look right. I'm not beautiful. And then that continues and it continues. And I was fascinated by it. And the fact that, you know, when you get older, you kind of don't care again a bit. Um, and I love this. And I thought I'd make this beautiful film. And that's what I dreamt of doing. And then I realized it's really hard to make a film and you have to be really, really good and you have to write a brilliant script. And then a very oh, small detail. <laughs> I mean, you know, I, I think by this stage, I thought I could do anything. And that's when I came firmly back down to earth with that is really awful and you failed completely. And luckily at that point, um, someone I worked with um, and who knew me quite well said, why don't you stick to what you know? And actually, the stories of truth, real stories, are so much more powerful. They're almost better than ones you can make up. And I thought, you got it. And I'd love to say it was my blindingly good idea, but it, it wasn't. But I did return to what I knew, which was telling stories of real people. You know, it's a different form of data. A story is still data. It's still, yeah. you know, the evidence of a life and how they actually overcame things. So, and I think you and I discovered this idea pretty much at the same time because yeah. you discovered all these amazing women in music and composers and musicians and oh amazing and I thought about all the women whose stories we've never heard and yet you know I grew up at school hearing about you know long dead women um Florence Nightingale who doesn't know that name I mean actually she was a mathematician wasn't she yes a statistician which I always find fascinating but you know her and Ada Lovelace and um, Amelia Earhart, they're the only ones we know. And, and you know, there are But did you, did you hear about Dame Stephanie Shirley? Not then, no, no, I didn't. And what a formidable, amazing woman mm -hmm. she is. So no, all of these incredible women whose stories we're now seeing, they've been there throughout history, as you've seen. Um, and they've just been, you know, 
whatever that word is, dampen down, put under the covers. I don't know why, but they have. So, um, yeah, this suddenly became like a revelation. And then, you know, and then you start telling stories and you start finding these women. And then you realize there are more and more and more. You don't know where to draw the line. And um, I remember when I took these first 60 women that we'd found and I was sharing it with um, someone quite famous and, um, you know, yes, famous and very authoritative. And he said to me, why only 60 women? And I said, very good question. I said, it could be 600, could be 6,000, could be 600,000. Where do you stop? But the fact is they've never been seen before. So you've got to start somewhere. And it is as simple as that. We just started. And now I think we see so many more lives and stories. And, um, you know, that's really what makes achievement suddenly seem more normal and more equal. No, it's fantastic. It's such an amazing work that you, you do. Thank you. Through this project. It's so inspirational. Um, and I, I, of course, things are changing. I, I do believe things are changing. Do you think it's changing fast enough? Uh, oh. I asked that. I watched, have you seen that documentary, um, the Gina Davis documentary? This changes everything. It's called. Uh, no, I'm ashamed to say I haven't. Oh, you should, because I, I only saw a, a yes. few weeks ago. I actually have never seen it. And she, Gina Davis has the, the Institute of Gender Research. And she did this documentary um, in 2018, doing a huge research on women in movies, of course, directors. And, um, and I was really emotional at some point because she shows through in the documentary and when they had silent movies women were everywhere they owned studios they were directing they were behind the camera and then something happens when sound came and they disappeared and then she points it out something that i i say a lot in this when we talk about women in music and the project because people come to me now not that i am an expert i am just a performer trying to do a small part and they say oh but everything's fine now you know women are fine you can see women uh, you know women are in music this is a problem of the past and and i go no it's not and and gina davis at some point she says exactly the same she says oh people see movies now and they see oh captain marvel or wonder woman mm -hmm. or, or 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 a movie with a black woman as a protagonist and they go oh, okay this changes everything and she said no, it doesn't. It doesn't change everything because it will only, uh, and I think exactly as you're saying before, I think it will only change almost when it becomes compulsory that people have diversity in all boards or, or something like that. Because of course your project is immensely huge. And of course we see a lot of change, especially in young women and role positive role models for young women we have so many so many more right now and through mm -hmm. the internet and projects like yours they have so much more visibility mm -hmm. but is it changing fast enough that's my question no not at all no <laughs> no it's a complete myth 
And I mean, it's really amazing how many really intelligent people say to me, yeah, but lots of women are going to university and they get the same number of degrees as boys. And like, yeah. And what happens then? And then what happens mid-career? You know, uh, do women stay in their jobs? Well, who's home looking after the children? Who's home looking after the elderly parents? Who's doing the in-between jobs of collecting at school or whatever needs doing? And it, you know, it has not changed. It, in fact, you know, there are little encouragement um, bars in certain places. You know, we, we can see some blips, some peaks, but they're not sustained and there's really been no shift at all. So I think, I think part of the challenge is, and, and I think it's fair, but part of the challenge is there's now a bit of confusion because we're now talking about minorities that are, combine a whole series of things. So we've got women. Well, number one, Women are not a minority. They're they're 51% of the population. So actually, it's men who are minorities. Um, You know, but we are equally balanced. But then within that, you've got the whole idea of all this intersectionality, and it's all being brought together Mm -hmm. as if it's all the same challenge and the same problem. Mm -hmm. And... um, we have to find our way through it. And I don't think anybody wants to be angry and I don't think anybody wants to blame any particular um, part of you know, what's causing this, but we do absolutely have to change it because um, the weak at the moment are getting weaker. Mm-hmm. The minorities are getting more um, minor <laughs> and, and so we almost have gone backwards rather than yeah. forwards now. So, um, you know, that is really my passion with the female lead to, to try and see if we can use data and evidence to understand, to really break down some of the myths that we think are true, to find the real truths and to say, okay, this seems okay, but this part isn't working. And then use, you know, really good minds, well-intentioned people. And also, you know, identify models where people have overcome some of this and have actually implemented, you know, really great company processes, policies, you know, ways of working. The, the real truth that everybody has to hold on to is the problem is not women. It is not women who need fixing. No. It, it is the process and the policies and some of our societal norms. And that's what needs fixing. So we all need to fix that. It's not a women's problem to be fixed by women. Um, and there's Definitely nothing not. physically wrong with women which makes them in this place but we have to work out how to do that so my next year my next program is bringing all the data and evidence Mm -hmm. sharing that with everyone and then starting to work on campaigns where we get people to speak out 
mm-hmm. and to look at where it works where it's a happier situation and say what can we learn from that and can we mimic it mm-hmm. can we use this to take us forward into a better place and that's what I'm hoping we do next year that's amazing can we do that in the music industry as well then <laughs> well yeah I mean that's Because that's a pretty talented area isn't it I know but do you know what happens is is in the music area we have a in the arts area or literature any anything I think is this exactly the same problem because you have the the historical um challenges that women had to go through of course and and deal with which incurred into less production artistic production for centuries and centuries but you know you still had many who actually produced many things or they gave it to their husbands to patent you know if they were inventors or or they 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 signed as a man or you know uh, composers as well there's a very famous story about Fanny Mendelssohn and Felix Mendelssohn with the Easter sonata which was this beautiful piano sonata signed F. Mendelssohn and only three years ago it was discovered it was written by Fanny, his sister. And it was, wow. Yeah, it was this massive and, uh, and now we don't know how many other pieces were. And then, and then in the music world, composers, historical ones, many of them were like, oh, she is the sister of Mozart. She is the wife of, and now we are getting some of the stories. Uh, But then you, they, they were removed from history and then now we're trying to bring them to history. But you deal with two types of people. One, the people who think they know everything. You know, they are big people in big high positions. You know, of course, mm-hmm. I will know all the repertoire. I am an artistic director of XYZ. Mm-hmm. So they don't even... Um, they're not necessarily, they don't have a prejudice, but they don't really think there's much more to know. And there's so, so much ignorance in, in the artistic world in terms of knowing what was in the past and actually knowing what's happening right now. And then of course you have the prejudice ones. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, you know, but Gabriella, I remember a moment where I was at this function, industry function with all the great and the good. And I was talking to this very, very senior man who's head of a huge organization. And I was doing my normal little, oh, you know, data and technology is so exciting. And he looked at me and I think I'd said, you know, and we will have data strategies and they will lead us forward into better places. And he looked at me and he just laughed and he said, data will never be strategic. I wish I could find him now and say, what do you think now? And the reason I raise this point. Does he know who you are? Do do you think he still remembers? I really hope so. Because he was so... Listen to her now. He was so patronizing. I remember it really hurt deep. And, you know, but the reason I say that is that there are always people like that who will say, no, 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 this will never be the case. This is the way it is. and we can change that and that's what our journey is about to actually bring the evidence of this to the fore so that actually it becomes yeah of course of course data and technology is strategic now um 
And of course it always was, and I always knew it was, and that's what we want people to say. We know there are great, great, you know, hugely talented females, artists, composers, musicians. We want people to say that, yes, it's obvious, because we will bring the evidence and the yeah. stories and the data. Let's do this. Yeah. We can stay here forever. Um, I will end your last question. Well, would like to end with a challenging question. So um, I think when you are a, a, a business person, part of your job is to make sure that you convince people that you're good at what you do. And, um, you know, you don't, you have a lot of proactivity as well. You don't simply expect the, the phone to ring. You know, you have to make, <laughs> make things uh, happen. But I think we as artists, as I, before I was mentioning, we, our challenge is we never see ourselves as a business. So we, we don't have this sense of selling ourselves because it feels so wrong mm. to us. You know, you spend, especially classical music, in any music, but classical music is such a, you know, you're almost like a, an athlete, the dedication, the years of discipline, the years of going to bed early, you know, after a concert, because you have to sing again tomorrow, in my case. Yeah, yeah. You know, you don't become a classical musician because you're going to be a millionaire, you're going to be famous. You become because you love what you do and you want to do that. For your passion and the last thing is our mind our minds is oh how am i going to sell myself tomorrow when yeah. you know what am i doing we don't want to have to think about that we want to think about are we doing this to the best of our capacity but we have such a challenge now because the musicians are struggling everywhere uh, if you played in an orchestra uh, you know what are you doing right now uh, people with jobs some people who played solo maybe have a bit easier in terms of how they can be creative uh, and, and do things. But also we have a problem that culture is not number one priority at the moment. There's so many other problems going on mm. and in people's lives. And, and sadly, I don't really see any investment in reminding society how precious art is and how powerful it is in our, in our world and how much it gives people in so many different moments. You see orchestras, you know, in the south of Brazil, you see those children become those amazing musicians just because they were given that opportunity to feel that music. So what would the pioneer entrepreneurial Edwina do right now if she was an artist? <gasps> told you it was a challenge, I told you it was a challenge. Well, you see, the thing, the thing I would consider is that when you're really brilliant at something, you see the differences and nuances, the difficulties, the genres, all of that. But when you come from outside looking in, all you see is someone with a skill you can't even imagine. You can't begin to imagine what it must be like to open your mouth and something beautiful come out or that you play something and it's beautiful. And so I would think about the idea of the power of two 
And I would think about a way in which you could take the skills that you have as artists and put them together with someone who's very good at business and selling, not an agent, but, but a, another talent pool and say, how can we make each other's talent pool work better? How can your business acumen and your network help? And how can our gorgeousness and creativity help you look more interesting and exciting? And actually, by putting that together, create something that's not been created before. Create something that crosses the bridge between highly function, highly functional, highly managed, highly corporate with totally beautiful and artistic and both adapt a little bit, but create something really new. Um, most people who are in the corporate world know that they're boring and that <laughs> their offer is often a bit dull. I mean, they know that because it's like, oh, you've got jargon you know, you deal with, you know, lots and lots of technical bits. I don't like any of it. You know, people know that. So how do you make it more beautiful? It's like in data and technology, the new way of doing it is data visualization. You create artistic pictures of data because it brings it alive. Well, imagine instead of a picture, music translates from data and algorithms I knew it was going to be a good question. Well, because we, we have all our senses. And actually, quite often, we only are good at one or two. And then when you put four together, or five, something incredible happens. So what combination would yield the most excitement, the most attention, and would be a calling card for both partners in that kind of collaboration. So data visualization is really the new thing, you know, infographics, visuals, but, you know, I mean, I remember Fantasia. I remember seeing Fantasia. My son fell in love with Fantasia. I hope he doesn't listen to this. He, oh, don't talk about me. Um, <laughs> but I remember it brought film and music together in a way I'd never seen before. And, you know, it, it was just very, very clever. And you need to find your fantasia, I think. Thank you so much for your time. Oh, last question. Well, it's the first thing you're going to do when all this is over. Oh, go and hug all my friends. I know, hug. I mean. Oh, my it, God, it's, it's true. It's awful. There is nothing else that matters. You can talk to them. You can ring them but you can't yes. hug them. And there's something so missing in our world yeah. moment. I Look, we're both going like I that. I know. Because we have to touch each yes. hand because it's the only touch that we have at the moment. So, yeah. yeah. So we do a, we'll do a metaphoric grab across the screen. Definitely. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you so much. For listeners wanting to learn more about Donne and everything that we do, please visit our website on www.donne, 
d-o-n-n-e hyphen uk dot org. If you enjoyed the podcast, please go to iTunes to subscribe. And while you're there, it will be great if you could rate and review the show and spread the word on social media. Thank you so much for listening and I look forward to being with you in our next episode.